0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, for round three, we have the cold email king, Mr. Kyle Coleman from Clary. But guess what? He's not just a cold email king today. He's shown us emails before you book a meeting, emails after the meeting, and even after you close a deal. Nick, why should people listen?
1: Well, most salespeople overweight their effort on upfront emails, opening conversations, cold emails. And don't get me wrong, Kyle has some really good best practices on that in this episode, but he also talks about stuff like how you should send an extremely effective and actionable recap email, how you should be emailing execs to keep them engaged in your deal where you might be working with their team. And so if you want to get better from a tone, a format, and a language perspective with all of your emails, you may enjoy this episode. Three, two, one All right, Kyle, welcome back to the show. You remember, we start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways, so let's get your three. Okay,
2: number one, read your emails out loud before you send them. This is true for cold emailing. This is true for deal management. This is true for what, whatever the circumstance is, internal emails. Take the time to read your emails out loud before you send them. And the reason for this, especially from a prospecting standpoint, is Reading them out loud, it's the easiest way to catch words that are unnatural, words that you wouldn't actually say. And if you wouldn't actually say them, then why are you writing them? So take the time to read things out loud before you send them. And if you like the way they sound, which you should, they can become your call scripts, your voicemail scripts, your video message scripts. You get to reuse them because you've already architected language that sounds good when you say it. Beautiful. What's number two, Kyle? Number two is abide by the three by three principle when you're following up post meeting. So SDRs, when you're following up after a discovery call or AEs, when you're following up after a demo three by three, your email should have two sections with three bullets. Each the top section is the top three takeaways from that meeting. What were the points in that meeting that your prospect was, you know, mind blown? What were the parts of the demo that were jaw dropping for them? What were the most memorable moments from that demo? Remind them of them. Three bullets. If you can keep those bullets to one line each, you're doing something very right. Second section is what are the mutually agreed upon next steps? Both things that you have to do that you owe the prospect as well as things that they owe you. Boom, boom, boom. Three things. Keep yourselves mutually accountable to moving a deal forward, and frankly, just pull back the curtain a little bit to show them that you are working on their behalf and earn the give and take relationship that should exist with them.
1: Woo, Round us out, Kyle. What's number three?
2: Number three, bribe differently. And I'm saying bribe and being a little cheeky here, but if you have a direct mail, if you have Sendoso or Alice or, or a tool like that at your disposal, the inclination of many sellers is to try and go right to the decision maker and be like, hey, decision maker, here's a $10 Starbucks gift card. And I'm sorry to break your hearts, but no CXO cares about a $10 gift card. It's going to be completely forgotten about, completely ignored more times than not. Instead, send them something and suggest they pass it along to a member of their team. Hey, you know, hey, Nick, I just spent 30 minutes with Armand. He's absolutely killing it. Thought he deserved some kudos and thought it would be more meaningful if it came from you. So here's a $50 Amazon gift card. Send it over to Armand. Give him a pat on the back.
0: Well, hello, sir or madam. While I did, in fact, like your first actionable takeaway, I would like to raise the subject of rigid language. So Kyle, there are two ways you can make your language less rigid. The first is your word choice. The second is sort of how you structure your sentences and length and whatnot so you don't have a massive wall of text, right? Let's talk about word choice. Are there common rigid words, whether it's not, will, not using the full word versus conjunctions or other things like that, are there common rigid forms of language that you see pretty often? that sellers can immediately correct that come to mind for you.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Sentence length is one of the main culprits here, where, and this is part of the virtue of reading your emails out loud. If you're reading an email out loud and you're running out of breath when you're reading a sentence, that is a bad sign. That is gonna turn into something that, you know, we got semicolons and em dashes and the rest of it. And it's just, it becomes too formal, it becomes too rigid, and you're trying to do too much. So shorten your sentences up. It'll make it a little bit easier to read. it also make it just more conversational. And then the second part is the actual word choice. And I know there are cultural differences here, and some people are more comfortable than others by using contractions. I highly recommend you say don't instead of do not. You say can't instead of cannot. It just sounds more conversational. And again, it's it's how most people actually talk. So use, use contractions however you can. And the other thing I'll say is there's one main culprit of trying to sound too smart that actually doesn't work, which is the word utilize. For whatever reason, people think that the word utilize is this like magnificent word that's going to just make them seem super smart. Well, guess what? Not only is use easier to say and easier to understand, use is also almost always right versus utilize. So get rid of those long sounding words and just replace them with the ones that are more basic. It doesn't make you seem stupid. It makes you an effective communicator. And that is the goal of cold emailing is effective communication.
1: Kyle, I'd be curious about your take on the tone of what a effective, let's say, cold email should sound like, because I feel like there's a spectrum of, on one end of the spectrum, you're extremely confident this thing is going to change your world, Armand. It's going to revolutionize your business. And then the other spectrum is like, oh, I'm not sure if we're a fit yet. Maybe we could have a discovery call, and then I could say if we're a fit and tell you more. Where should salespeople be landing on that spectrum in their cold
2: emails? It's a great question, Nick. And I would say the goal is to exude confidence. And where most sellers fall down is most sellers spend the, an inordinate amount of time and maybe even a disproportional amount of time learning their own product, learning their own solution. So they can talk inside and out about the features and benefits and value props and persona level stuff and all that for their product. And that's great. But... If you don't actually understand the people and companies that you're selling to, you can't be as confident as you need to be in your outreach, in your demos, in your follow-ups, and all the rest. So really study your personas, know what they do day-to-day, know what they're measured on, be able to speak their language, know who they report to, know what success looks like in a longer-term horizon, really steep yourself in your prospects universe so that you can exude that confidence and connect the dots truly between what your product does and what your personas are trying to do. That's one piece of it. The second piece of it is know what your accounts are actually trying to do. You can sound confident about your product and all the wonderful features you have and the benefits of that. But if they're disconnected from the company's goals, then all that confidence in your messaging is completely washed. And know somebody's going to respond to you and say, this is not top of mind for me, you're like, oh, shoot. I sounded so confident, what happened? If you can do a little bit of research on the account, understand what their strategic initiatives are, they're expanding internationally or undergoing M&A or rolling out a new product line, or they just brought on a new leader in a department that matters to you. And then you can tie your value prop to those strategic initiatives that that company is pursuing. That is how you sound not just confident, that's how you sound credible. And that credibility, it earns confidence. And when you have that perspective on an account, when you can show them that you actually understand them as a persona, them as a company, and your solution is going to help them achieve their short and long term goals, that's the kind of tone that makes somebody sit back in their seat and be like, wow, this is a company I want to do business with. This is a partner who can actually help me and not just some vendor that's going to sell something to me.
0: So, Kyle. Are there certain ways that you have trained SDRs in the past to learn the language of their personas without just dumping a million buzzwords and jargon into their email?
2: Go live where your prospects live. Follow the influencers that are posting the stuff, You know the personas that are posting the stuff. Read the newsletters, listen to the podcast, go to the events. You will be way better off for it. Early days, it may not make a ton of sense to you, and you're going to be like, wow, That was completely over my head. Certainly, that was me when I was learning about what it meant to be a data analyst and a CTO. I had no idea. But eventually, you start to understand and you start to develop that fluency of language. And then you can use those terms, use those KPIs, those metrics, whatever it is, totally fluently in your
1: correspondence, email, as well as spoken word.
2: And you're going to be in much better shape.
1: So... I want to ask you one more question about cold email. You've talked about, okay, we understand the persona, the stuff that they're doing. We deeply understand the language, the jobs to be done, et cetera, for the person we're prospecting. We understand the company priorities of the account that we are going into, and we're able to explain how our thing might help solve a problem in a way that doesn't sound extremely formal or jargony. You made an interesting post on LinkedIn the other day about... Perfection in emails and sort of the law of diminishing returns. And I'm curious to get your take on how perfect should I be working to get that email? At what point do I say, okay, this is good and shippable versus let me get this thing to 100% perfection? I'm curious your take.
2: It's a good question, Nick. If you're brand new to email writing, it's hard, it takes time. Like, ideally, I'd love for you to be able to write that perfect email in five minutes. But the fact of the matter is learning how to write effective emails is just like building any other muscle. It takes time to build it up and to learn how to do it well. So yes, you should try and be efficient, but in the early days, it's going to be something closer to about 20 minutes that it takes you, maybe even 30 minutes to write that effective email. But the goal here is to be intentional about it. If you're just getting started and you're like, man, it's taken me a long time to write these emails, time yourself, time yourself and be rigid about it and say, okay, I'm only going to allow myself 20 minutes on this email. And I know that's a little too long, but the last one took me 30. So if I can cut that down by 33%, I'm going to be in pretty good shape. So 20 minutes for this email. And then a month later, 10 minutes for the email. And then a month later, five minutes for the email. And you're going to get better at it as long as you improve it. Now, your emails do not have to be perfect. They need to abide by some principles, which again, we've, we've gone over ad nauseum in the past fellas. So we don't need to I think rehash them now, you can go back and listen to a couple of our different episodes. But if you just have a, a relatively simple checklist where you're keeping your email short, conversational, doing the right things with your subject line and call to action, it's not rocket science. It's science, it's not rocket science. And you just have to figure out how to manage that science and you'll get better at it over time. So start, just be intentional about it and start with a timer and then force yourself to shave time off over the uh, over the weeks, over the months, and you will get down to finding that balance between efficiency and quality.
0: Kyle, I want to jump back to that post-sale email because one thing that I see AEs doing very frequently is they'll write these really long recap emails or they'll write them from scratch every time, and then they'll realize, well, this is a waste of time. So then the next thing you know is they overcorrect in the other direction, and they copy-paste these are the 10 things that Clary does for you to every single customer, and it's just a big feature dump in every recap email. So you described it as three by three. So the top three things that we took away from the meeting, and then the top three next steps from that point on. Can you walk me through for that first section, the top three things you took away from the meeting, what should I be pulling into that section, and how should it sound and look? in an email.
2: Yeah. Now, the three bullets you have, the beauty of bullet points is completely lost if every bullet is a paragraph. Like you're you're misusing bullets, some sort of MLA formatting issue, I'm sure, but it just looks bad. So the bullets, you need to keep them succinct. And I mentioned before, if they're one line each, That's a really, and that's desktop, one line each. So maybe two, maybe three lines on mobile, but one to two lines on mobile is ideal, one line on desktop. And what you're trying to do there, Armand, is you're trying to remind them of why they were excited in that meeting. I mean, we've all been in demo meetings before where the person in the meeting is like all jazzed up, they're ready to go. And then you send a long follow-up to them and you never hear from them again. you're like, what happened? We were best friends in that call. So remind them of what was exciting to them personally. When you had them, if you were able to show a demo, what was exciting to them there? Remind them of that. And if you have a, you know, a little GIF or if you have a, a fuller demo on that one particular feature, you can link out to that. So that's one thing. The second thing to include in that top section is what is the connection point between the conversation you had and the strategic initiatives that they're pursuing? If you sent the cold email and you said, hey you guys just had this merger and acquisition. Here's how we can help you manage that process. And then in the demo, you talked about how you're going to help them through that M&A. Then in the follow-up, reiterate the value of helping them navigate the M&A in one sentence or in one or two sentences. So it's those two things, the things that were jaw-dropping to them, and then the things that connect the dots between your product solution and their strategic initiatives. If you can do that in three bullets, They can actually understand it. It's not overwhelming to them. Versus if you try and recap the whole 30-minute demo that you gave, it's going to be completely unwieldy, and there's no chance that they actually review any of that information.
0: So this is really tactical here. But in one bullet, are you trying to attach both the problem and the solution in each bullet? Because it can be a lot, and I've struggled with, should it only be about them or should it only be about me in the recap?
2: Ideally, it's a combo armand. So let's say in the demo meeting, I'm showing you uh, I'm showing you Clary and I show you this feature that we call uh, the deal score. When you hover over the deal score, it gives you the buying signals about what's going well and what isn't going well. You know, pricing was downgraded or the CFO is not engaged or we haven't gotten an email response from them in two weeks or there's no next meeting on the books or whatever it is. It gives you those risk and momentum indicators when you're uh, hovering over that deal score number. So in the bullet point that I'm following up with you, I would say, hey, I'm, uh, you know, my intro to the email is, hey, Armand, thanks again for the time. Here's the top three things we talked about. Bullet one, deal score. You always know which deals are going to win, which ones are going to lose. That's it. That's the way that I summarize that feature. So it's a little bit of what the feature is, but it's really more about the value that you're going to get from it. And so the goal, a positive outcome here is that the person I'm sending this follow-up to sends it around to other people. And so I want this email to be as easy to read and consume and as easy to understand without needing the context of the meeting as possible. And if you can find that way to weave in the features, the problems, and the solution into that one sentence that are in your three bullets, you're doing a really good job. It's not easy.
1: What you're trying to do is make it extremely easy for the people who are in that meeting to forward that email along and say, hey met with Armand, here's context for the meeting and how this is attached to a strategic priority. That's your intent, right? Exactly
2: right. And especially because, so that's the top part of the three by three. The bottom part of the three by three is the next steps. And more often than not, the initial next steps are going to involve folks beyond the the initial meeting person. So for example, if I need a security review, or if I need a MNDNA signed, or if I need whatever I need, I'm probably going to need somebody who's not the person I met with. And so, when that person, I'm controlling the process. I'm a buyer, or I'm a seller, rather. I know how typically my product sells. And I want to match the way that the buyer buys as much as possible, as well. But early deal cycle, I, I kind of know what needs to happen here. So I'm saying we're going to do. I, we need the MNDNA signed by this date. We're, we've got a security review on the books for ten days from now, and I owe you XYZ thing. So that way, when they forward it along to their security team or their procurement team or their whatever. Compliance team, there is already context for why the ask is being made to sign that MNDNA because that in the top section, we, Hey, here's the value that this company is going to get out of it. You're making life easier for your buyer by doing these things in a uniform way.
1: So that sort of takes me to my other question, which is, I'm curious your take on sending collateral, like follow-up case studies or that DNA attachment, or here's a one-pager of all of our security certifications. I've seen it done two ways. I've seen people who will include all of those attachments in the same follow-up email. So it's one follow-up email. And then I've seen people send separate emails with each of the attachments to make it easy to almost be like, here's your to-do list in your inbox. I'm curious your take there. What do you recommend?
2: Well, in an ideal world, you're using a product like Clary and you have a deal room that allows you to aggregate all that collateral together. But well, leaving aside the sales pitch, I find it totally overwhelming when all of the collateral is in a single email, totally overwhelming. So what I would recommend is that case studies or, you know, whatever else it may be, those are really effective engagement points later on in, in the deal life cycle. So you're managing the process. You want the most important thing is that you're adhering to the mutually agreed upon next steps that came out of that first call or that second call or whatever it may be. The ancillary thing that you're trying to do is you're trying to teach the, the, the prospect about the value that your company is gonna bring to them. And so there's probably another point where you can send a completely unrelated new thread email that says, hey, I was just reviewing this case study. It reminded me exactly of your scenario. Like Armand, you mentioned that you're curious to understand how Clary can be helpful to navigate the downturn. Here is a case study about how we help people through COVID, not just survive, but thrive through COVID and uh, achieve all these different operational efficiencies, which is exactly what you're trying to do as you scale. And that no call to action, just here's the case study. Thought you'd find it interesting. It's people who are doing exactly what you are trying to do right now.
0: Take it or leave it. So Kyle, we've talked about what happens before your first meeting. We've talked about what happens after your meeting. I know you also have some tactics around after the deal is sold. What are the best ways to re-engage a customer for an upsell conversation? So one of the things that I've often struggled with in the past is, I've now passed this off to my customer success team. It might have been one to two quarters since I've re-engaged with this customer. And so what do you find is the best way to artfully weave your way back into a conversation with a customer as an AE who may have not engaged with a deal 6 months since it it had been signed. Sure,
2: yeah. So some companies have a firmer division of labor between the AEs who are the hunters and then the account managers or CSMs who are the farmers. There are some companies that have, you know, full cycle AEs who are responsible both for closing the initial deal as well as expanding. And so the, c- the scenarios are a little bit different because, you know, if there's a cleaner handoff to post sales and the AE is like, "All right, my work here is done. That changes the formula a little bit. But basically, what is true in any situation is that you need as much rigor and as much thoughtfulness going into your expansion and retention plays as you need in your top of funnel SDR, AE prospecting plays. And many companies do not do this. They will just kind of say, all right, the hard work is done. We got them to sign on the dotted line. And now we're just going to sit back, they're going to adopt the product beautifully. And then they're going to want to expand, they're not going to have any other choice. That's not the way that this goes. So you need to be as proactive as possible post-sale in order to architect the things that you want to happen, the the cross-sell that you want to pursue, or the renewal that you want to shore up in an early timeline, or the expansion into new licenses that you think you can achieve, or whatever it may be, you need to be proactive about. it. And the the benefit in the post-sales setup is that you have a ton of data at your disposal about how they're engaging with the product. What features of the product are they using? What are they not using? What customer events have they gone to? What new people have they brought on who perhaps haven't been indoctrinated or brought up to speed or educated? And so you have all of this different data at your disposal. The recommendation to finally answer your question here, Aman, is you need to create a handful of sales plays that determine what you do based on data that you see, patterns that you see or don't see. So for example, our SDR equivalent that we call account development managers, And what they are doing is they are looking for every renewal deal where the CFO is not engaged, which is to say the CFO is not logging into the platform, is not making use of Clary, whatever it may be. That is a red flag for us right now. CFOs are making tech consolidation decisions right now. And if they go and if they're not familiar with your tool, with your tool, that's a strike against you. If they then go to stakeholders and ask, hey, is this something we should renew? And they get, you know, a shoulder shrug from those stakeholders. That's not a good thing. We want to control that process. So we have the kind of the data filter that says, is the CFO engaged? Yes or no. What was the last engagement? And then we have the playbook to run that says, we want to make an introduction to our CFO to do a day in the life thing or do a customer education thing or marketing team. We need to set up a roundtable virtual roundtable for CFOs to get together and talk about how each other are navigating the macroeconomic environment. So whatever those things are, we're creating those outlets for CFOs to engage with one another. And then our post-sales SDR team is the one going and making that offer. So, and we have architected all sorts of plays. I think we have like 10 or 13 different plays that we can make for cross-sell scenarios, for upsell scenarios, whatever it may be. But it's been a, a work in process. It's taken 18 months for us to build all these out. With fits and starts, we didn't do this perfectly, but the point of all this is that you need as much intention, you need as much rigor in your post-sales prospecting efforts as you need in your pre-sales prospecting efforts, and many companies just don't even try.
1: Kyle, I want to ask you a little more about that exec sponsor engagement thing, because one thing that has happened to me is I sell a deal for 30 minutes to President's Club to an executive. And then that person says, Nick, here's my team. They're going to be the ones who manage this day to day. And an area that I've struggled is keeping that person apprised of what is happening in the implementation and the value that we're bringing. And I'm curious if you have any best practices for how I keep 30 Minutes to President's Club top of mind with them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So this goes back to maybe one of my tips I said at the beginning, which is around bribing differently. And again, being tongue in cheek about the bribery here, I'm a huge fan of the direct mail platforms. So I think it's very valuable for sellers, post sales, pre-sales, whatever, to control the narrative, control the process. You cannot and should not assume that your top decision maker or the person with most seniority is actually staying plugged in to what's happening from a deal uh, management standpoint or from an implementation standpoint and product usage standpoint if it's post a post-sales uh, environment. So you can and should control the narrative that they receive. Now, it doesn't mean you need to be emailing them every day. It probably doesn't even mean every week, but there's some cadence every two weeks, every month, something like that, where you can send them a follow-up note that does a couple things. One of them is give them kudos, give them the congratulations to the people on the, their team that you're working with. Hey, Julian, two things. One, Devin is absolutely killing it. Here's a $50 gift card that would be awesome if you sent this way. I'm sure it'd mean more coming from you than coming from me. That's one. Two, the implementation is going great. We've done XYZ. Your team is seeing this kind of value. If you want or need more information, let me know. That's it. Talk to you soon. And so you put the ball back in their court where you say, first of all, your team is wonderful, killing it. Here's a prize. Second of all, implementation is going great green flag, green flag, green flag. If there are ever any red flags, you have a relationship now where you can go to them and you can be open and honest about it. You can get what you need. So you're planting the seeds, you're controlling the narrative, and you're making sure you're just keeping the line of communication open. It's really, really important. Will they always respond to this email? No. Rarely will they respond to it. That's okay. They will see it. And if you're abiding by these email principles, if you're keeping it short and sweet, if you're keeping it conversational, if it's easy to read, they will read it. So, Give them a reason to stay engaged, and they will.
1: Kyle, this has been a phenomenal episode, and we're running out of time, so we got to move ourselves to the final question. And the final question is this. You've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. Now i got to ask you about a shouldn't. And so the last question is, what is one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? At
2: the end of demos, we're at the waning seconds. I, I keep my seconds up on my computer clock because I'm an absolute nerd. So I'm like counting down the seconds and there are like 42 seconds left. And finally, the seller is like, any questions? So what do you have for me? And I'm just like, oh, it kills me. Because first of all, you shouldn't be waiting to the end of a call to ask if your prospect has any questions. But that's what so many sellers do. Monologue, 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 demo, demo, demo. And then with 40 seconds left. So any questions? It's crazy. So be way more intentional about how you are, first of all, asking questions throughout the the meeting to keep your, your person engaged. And then secondly, be really intentional about how much time you're leaving at the end of the call to capture the questions, not necessarily to answer the questions, but to capture them. So the good rule of thumb in a 30 minute meeting, leave yourself five minutes at the end, In an hour-long meeting, leave yourself 10 minutes in the end. That's all about capturing questions. Now, the purpose, and I'm very intentional about saying capture and not answer, because if you try and rush through responses and you're frantically sharing your screen, you're pointing at different features, you're like that, like it's not actually, it's not setting in. Your answer isn't actually meaningful. So that's one, like your answers aren't meaningful when you rush them. But two, capturing the questions gives you a reason to follow up. So when you are following up, You're giving them the high level answers to the questions that they asked, or you're saying, you know what, this would be better served for the next demo that we have, which is scheduled for November 12th. And we'll start with this question. I'll bring in my sales engineer who's uniquely suited to answer this and we'll be on our merry way. Does that sound good? So you're controlling the process by capturing the questions that they have and you're relieving the pressure on yourself to not have to answer these questions in real time, but rather set yourself up nicely for the follow-up and follow-on
1: meetings that you're going to have. Boom. That is beautiful. I love that one. Kyle, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60 second recap coming up soon. Here's
0: my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's
1: auto reminders for everything. If I expect
0: Any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Your zoom info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's moving up. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Kyle Coleman include number one, read your emails out loud and try to use things like contractions and shorter sentences to sound less robotic. Number two, speak the language of your target persona and then tie the problems of that persona to the company priorities when you're prospecting. Number three, the three-by-three three recap email List the top three takeaways from the meeting followed by the top three next steps. And then lastly, number four, when you're phrasing those top takeaways, make it short, and focus most of your summary on the problem so that the solution sells itself. Nick, how can people help us out here?
1: I was lucky enough to get to meet Kyle in person at Dreamforce this year. And something he said to me really stuck out. He said, the number one thing that I care about in all the podcasts I do and everything I put on LinkedIn is I really just want to help people. I want to help elevate the profession of sales. I want to help salespeople get better. And- I know Kyle puts a lot of hard work into preparing for podcast episodes like this. He puts a lot of really great stuff out there on LinkedIn. And so if you're a 30 Minutes to President's Club listener who's made it this deep in the episode, I think it would be meaningful if you sent Kyle a note and said, thank you. That's all I got. We'll see you next week on the show. It's